Good morning. I'm Josh Stevens. I have the privilege of serving on your elder board, and I have the additional privilege of introducing our speaker this morning. Uh, you may recognize Ryan Collinger if you've been around for a while. Um, Ryan recently graduated from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in December, and uh, he's one of the people that grew up here in Midland Free and has gone into full-time missionary or mission ministry, excuse me, because I was thinking of the other missionaries that we have in Uganda and in Thailand and just how uh, from the children's ministry to the youth ministry to um, the all the ministries that we do here at Midland Free and how God really uses uh, you and all the volunteers and staff here to bring up and uh, to equip people like Ryan. So really appreciate Ryan. Please welcome him. Good morning. My name is Ryan Kohlinger, and I have the honor of bringing God's word to you this morning. So I'd like to start by telling you a little bit about myself. Um, Josh did a great job of giving you a little bit of background. Um, as he said, some of you may actually remember me um, as I grew up in this church. Uh, I actually stood on this platform nine years ago uh, to give the Youth Sunday message. And I'm also two-time champion of the extreme youth group, Turkey Hunt. Just saying. So let me catch you up a little bit on what's happened since I graduated from high school. My wife, Jordan, and I have been married for four years, and we have an eight-month-old son named James. And I just recently, as Josh said, uh, graduated from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary with my Master of Divinity. And I currently work for a Christian organization that provides housing for international students at Purdue University, and it gives me an avenue to share the gospel with those students. However, what is most important about me today is not my accomplishments, and it's not my family. What is most important about me today is one of my greatest failures. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, this is a little odd. This guy comes to our church to preach, and he's starting off by telling us what's wrong with him. And you're right, that is a weird way to start off. But it's necessary for our passage today, which is going to be in the book of Job. So turn with me to Job chapter 1, which is page 528, if you're using one of the blue Bibles, while I tell you about my greatest failure. Now, just recently, I was confronted with my own failure to obey God for the right reasons. My greatest failure in my life so far has been the fact that I was asked to resign from one of my previous jobs. Now, asked to resign is merely a courteous way of firing someone. And there were a lot of factors at play as to why I was asked to resign, but the most significant one for us today is my failure at that time to submit myself to where God wanted me to be. You see, I was not happy in my job, and I wanted to be doing something else. I thought I knew the right path for my life, and I was unwilling to recognize that God is greater and that his plan for my life is better than my plan. And so as a result of my stubbornness, he allowed me to lose my job. I struggled with depression in the weeks afterward, and I sought out counseling. In that counseling, I realized that I was following and obeying God in part because I thought it would result in the life that I wanted. I thought that if I obeyed God, he would give me my ideal life. And God took that ideal life away from me. 
And that's caused me to grow in my trust of God. And this is what we're going to see this morning in the book of Job. So we're going to spend our time today looking at the first major section of Job, which is the prologue found in chapters 1 through 2. So let's dive into the text, starting with Job chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yokes of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the fast had run their course, uh, feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Okay, let's, let's pause here for a moment before I continue on. So here we're introduced to the main character of this passage, which is Job. And he is the most righteous man in the world at this time. He's certainly more righteous than I've ever been in my life. And things seem to be going pretty well for Job, right? Well, let's keep reading and find out what happens in our story. Verse 6. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job and there is, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has. And he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now throughout the rest of chapter 1 and into chapter 2, Satan proceeds to go out and destroy everything that Job has. All of Job's children are killed. He loses all of his possessions. And God even gives Satan permission to strike Job with terrible boils all over his body. Now, these verses here are establishing a very important setting, and it's not the ancient Near East. That's, and it's, it's not Job's house. What's the most important setting here is the setting of a cosmic courtroom. So where, where do I get that from? Well, the word for Satan in Hebrew is Satan, and is literally translated as adversary, opponent, or accuser. And what we're dealing with throughout the entire book of Job and this morning is a trial. Starting with verse 6, we are shown a setting in heaven that turns into a courtroom as the accuser walks in and starts a legal trial. What is significant in this passage is that Job is not on trial. Even though later on in, in the book of Job, it will be revealed that Job himself thinks he is on trial. Rather, we see from these verses that God's policies concerning how he treats the righteous are what are on trial by the accuser. Look again with me at verses 8 through 11. 
And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, here it is. Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. Here's Satan's argument. If God consistently rewards righteousness over and over and over again, then won't people be tempted to live righteously merely for the blessings that they get for living righteously? People will turn into ethical mercenaries, only doing the right thing because of the reward that they'll get. And this is not right thinking. God doesn't want us to obey him primarily for the rewards. Instead, God wants people to live righteously primarily in order to please him. And this brings us to the first point of our passage. Christians should not follow God because we get temporal blessings in this life. But we should do it because following God is the right thing to do. Because God's greatness demands it. Because we love him. And because his promises will always find their fulfillment in eternity. Let me say that one more time. Christians should follow God not because we get temporal blessings in this life but because God is the, following God is the right thing to do, because God's greatness demands it, because we love him, because his promises will always find their fulfillment in eternity. Now, let me help you understand this with a fun little illustration. Sometimes we have to bribe our kids to eat dinner, don't we? We want our kids to want to eat dinner. We want them to want what is good for them, even the Brussels sprouts. But what do we end up having to say to them? If you don't eat your dinner, you don't get any dessert. It's like this with my son, who is currently learning to eat solid foods. We've been trying out different foods with our son to mixed results. Recently, my wife tried to feed him spinach. And now I have to say, he's a really good sport about food. And we really can't complain because he'll eat pretty much anything, even when he doesn't like it. So when we first tried getting him to eat spinach, he was okay for the first few bites. But then it started to happen. His his tongue started working overtime. And he started to get those tears welling up in his eyes, just waiting to pour out. And he's looking at you with this look of, why would you do this to me? (laughs) And as a parent, your heart is just shredded, you know? He's like, he doesn't understand. So what did we do? Well, we ended up mixing in some blueberries with the, bus, with, with the spinach, and blueberries are his favorite, in order to get him to eat it without that utter look of betrayal in his eyes. Additionally, we've gotten to the point with him that we have to start with the vegetables and then finish with the fruits, because if we start with the fruits, he won't eat the vegetables afterward. Now, what point does this illustrate for us today? Our children are not after the good things, a healthy dinner. They are after the dessert, or in James' case, the fruit. They are eating their dinner not because it is right and good for them. Rather, they're eating their dinner in order to get the rewards. So let's apply this illustration to our earlier question today. We need to stop and ask ourselves, why do we obey God? We need to check our heart motivations. 
are we obeying God because we want dessert? I had to answer this question when I lost my job. My world began falling apart. I had spent my entire life serving God in churches and God allows this to happen to me? It really caused me to stop and ask myself, was I following God because I thought it would lead to the blessings that I wanted? And during that season, I had to reaffirm the conclusion that I follow God because I love him and I want to serve him more than anything, even when things go wrong. So let me put this question another way to you. Does God function like a vending machine in your life? Do you believe that if you say the right things, do the right things, and push the right buttons, God will reward you? If I read my Bible and pray every day, then God will bless me with money. If I go to church and attend a Bible study, then no tragedies will strike me. If I discipline my children and make them go to church every week, then they will be wonderful, obedient children and grow up to be believers as adults. Now, many of us probably wouldn't say outright, yeah, I believe this and this is what's going on. These are subtle things in our hearts that creep in over time. Now, it is true that when we obey God and honor him, things tend to go better for us. However, it is critical that you understand that this is not a transaction with God where we do one thing and he is obligated to do something for us in return. Or it's not a law of nature that will always be true, right? Job's story shows us that you can be the most righteous person ever and evil can still befall you. Now, let me ask an even deeper question. Is your faith merely fire insurance? Well, God, I prayed a prayer. So now I've got my get out of hell free card. Doesn't matter how else I live, what choices I make if I obey your commands, or if I treat others with love, I'm still getting into heaven because I said a prayer once. I did my thing, so now God is obligated to do his thing, right? Friend, you are tragically mistaken. Now keep your finger here in Job and turn forward with me to Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23 state, 23 state, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This passage should frighten us. Why? Well, I don't know about you, but I've never prophesied. I've never cast out any demons and I've never done any mighty works, right? So the people in this passage are by all appearances, super Christians. They should get into heaven way before I should. Yet Jesus says they will not enter heaven. Why? Because they had a transactional relationship with Jesus without truly knowing Jesus. Friend, do you truly know Jesus? Maybe you're here today and you don't even know who this Jesus is. Well, Jesus is God's son who came to the earth 2,000 years ago. Well, why did God have to send Jesus to the earth? Well, because of our sin, our wrongdoing. See, in the beginning, God created mankind and we enjoyed perfect fellowship with him. But then the first man and woman disobeyed God and the penalty for disobeying an infinite God is infinite punishment. 
Sin entered the world, and now every one of us is marked by sin. And we all deserve death because we disobey God every day. But God didn't want to leave us in the state. Someone needed to take that penalty for us. God loved us so much that he sent us his one and only son. Jesus came and lived the perfect life of obedience to God that we could not. He was then killed by his people, paying the penalty for our sins. And all we have to do is confess our sins to God, believe in his son, and follow God with all of our hearts. Friend, have you made that commitment today? If not, now is the time. Today is the day. Don't let this opportunity slip you by. After the service, come talk to me or an elder here or a close friend that you know who is a Christian. We'd love to show you how to accept Christ. And for those of you who are here today who consider yourselves to be believers, let me ask you, do you know Jesus truly? Have you completely surrendered your life to him? Have you sought to obey all his commands? Have you sought to do his will in your life, even when it conflicts with your will? Are you more concerned with your own affairs, money, family, safety, political party, rights, reputation? Or are you more concerned with God's affairs, loving your enemies, sharing the gospel, defending the oppressed, caring for the poor? Those who truly know Jesus are those who put aside their own affairs and seek after God's affairs. And this requires sacrifice, such that we oftentimes have to give up some of those things that we earnestly desire in this life that aren't necessarily bad things. It's not, it's not bad to want safety, to want have a good reputation, to want to have our rights, but sometimes God calls us to willingly give these things up. Now is the day for you to turn to God and say to him, I'm not going to follow you because of what I can get out of it. I'm going to follow you because I want to please you. So what about Job? Did he obey God only because God blessed him? Well, let's turn back to Job chapter one. Let's take a look at verses 20 through 22. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Job served God because it was the right thing to do, not because God treated him the way that he thought he should be treated. But I want us to stop here and take an even deeper look at, James, at Job's response. So we just read in chapter one that Job fell on his face and worshiped God as his response. Now let's look, take a look at Job's response in chapter two when the second wave of disasters hit him. So chapter two, verses nine through 10 are Job's second response to these disasters. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. What a profound response. Job does not question God. He does not demand that God provide answers or that God change his situation. Job does not become embittered against God. What does he do instead? He responds in faith. 
Job can't see what's going on, right? He can't see this heavenly courtroom and understand that he's exhibit A of this courtroom trial to see if it's really a good policy for God to bless the righteous. He doesn't understand what's happening, but he chooses to trust. Why? Because Job is not living for his own gain. And Job isn't the only one who shows us this example in scripture. In 2 Samuel 12, God punishes David for his sin in taking Bathsheba as his wife and killing Uriah. So let me give you some background here. King David was on his roof one day. He saw a beautiful woman bathing. He had her brought to him. He had an affair with her. She became pregnant and she's married. Uh Uh-oh. So he says to his commander, hey, uh, her husband is in the army. Make sure he gets killed in the war. The husband gets killed in the war. David brings her into into his household and marries her. All good. Mm, Not really. It gets found out. And as a punishment, God says, okay, this, this child that your wife is pregnant with, that you had outside of wedlock, he's going to die. God allows David's son to, son to die as a consequence of David's actions. And how does David respond when he learns that his son has died? Well, 2 Samuel twelve twenty says, then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. Why do these men respond this way? Because they do not follow God for what they can get out of the relationship. They follow God because of who God is. They follow God because God is worthy to be followed, even when they don't understand why following him is costing them so much. And I've lived out difficult circumstances. Or I'm sorry, I've seen this, I have, but I've also seen this lived out in uh, other people's lives. So some of you may have heard the story of Tyler Trent. So Tyler was a young student at Purdue University who tragically came down with cancer. And unfortunately, cancer eventually won and took his life. And his family, they were members at our church that my wife and I were attending at the time when we lived in Indianapolis. A few months after Tyler's death, his, his parents happened to sit in front of my wife and I one Sunday morning. During worship, we sang a song, and I, I can't remember which one it was, but I remember that the song was about trusting God in the midst of pain and storms of life when we don't understand. And these two were standing there, lifting their hands and singing these words with tears in their eyes. They didn't understand why God allowed their son to be taken. But they followed God, not because he promised to save their son from dying, but because God was worthy of their worship. Friends, this response takes great faith. You may be sitting here today and saying to yourself, I'm not sure if I could respond like that if that were to happen to me. You're probably sitting here saying, Ryan, this is really depressing. What hope is there? I'm glad you're asking these questions because it leads us to the final two points of our message today. Job shows us two important things about the Christian life. The first truth is that God increases our faith over our lives. And the second is that God always gives us the grace we need to endure. So let's take a look at each of these in turn. First, God increases our faith over the course of our lives. The Christian life is a progression of faith. Throughout our Christian walk, We will grow deeper and deeper in faith such that we can eventually come to the point that we could respond to tragedy the way Job and David do. 
Here's the difference between a true believer and someone who follows God for what they can get out of it. A true believer will respond to hearing about these tragedies by saying, God, I'm not at that point today, but I trust that you will help me to grow in my trust so that one day I will be at that point if something like this were to befall me. Someone who follows God for what they can get out of it will say, that's not something I signed up for. Friends, the Christian life is not a promise of ease and luxury. That is something that is easy for us to forget in suburban America. John 16, says, I have told you these things so that in me, you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Did you see that? Jesus promises that we will have trouble. Psalm 34, 19 says, the righteous person may have many trials, but the Lord delivers him from them all. Romans 8, 18 says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. First Peter 1, 6 through 7 says, in all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that you, the, the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. James 1, 2 through 4 says, Consider it pure, my, pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Here, James says, when you face trials, not if you face trials, right? We're promised that we will suffer in this life. But we also see in James and in these other passages that our suffering results in a magnificent work in our lives. This suffering is not in vain. So what is this suffering for? Well, let's pause Let's take a moment to talk about one of the most well-loved and known Bible verses of all time, Romans 8, 28, which states, for we know that God works all things together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. This is a wonderfully encouraging Bible verse, but I fear we have misunderstood this verse as the years have gone by. It has become a nice platitude of Christianity. It's become watered down. And here's what I mean. This verse states that all things work together for good. What good, right? That's a very broad word that can mean anything you want it to mean, right? A child may tell us that it is good for him to stay up all night playing video games. He may think that's good, but we know it's not. So we have to go to the next verse in order to understand what this good means, right? So the next verse, verse 29 says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, Right, so that verse starts with for, the word for. This is a conjunction, which is showing us that this verse 29 is linked to verse 28. You can't have the two separated from each other. And verse 29 is further explaining verse 28. So did you catch the good in verse 29? To be conformed to the image of his son. All things work together to make us more and more like Jesus. Guess what? Jesus didn't have a very easy life. So making you more like Jesus does not mean making your life easier. Jesus was tempted, mocked, persecuted, beaten, and even killed. Granted, being made more like Jesus might mean making you look more like that sweet picture of Jesus cuddling the little lamb. Or being made more like Jesus might make you look more like Jim Caviezel, Passion of the Christ Jesus. And this is the picture we have in Job today. He's covered in boils, 
He's lost all of his property and his wife is encouraging him to curse God and die. But God had increased his faith over his life so that he could respond to these trials the way he did. And I can honestly say that the trial in my life that came from being fired made me more like Jesus. But guess what? It hurt a lot. I didn't know what I was gonna do for income. I was in the middle of seminary at the time and I thought I might have to drop out and never finish in order to provide for my family. But I grew through the experience. God exposed places in my life that I had not fully given him control over, areas where I didn't fully trust him. And God was shaping me to be more and more like his son through that experience. What about you? What trials are you going through right now? What difficulties are you facing? Can you see how these difficulties may be used by God to make you more like his son? We've all been living through a pandemic, which thankfully seems to be getting better. These have been some tough times. We didn't get to see the people we wanted to as often as we like. And we had to try and stay in and protect others. And we had to wear those uncomfortable masks. So let me ask you this. How have you responded during the pandemic? Have you responded with anger, indignation, fear, rebelliousness, resentment? Have you asked yourself, how is God trying to use this pandemic to make me more like Christ? Have you asked yourself which fruit of the spirit you could grow in through this pandemic? Love, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Friend, I hope you see trials not as burdens, but as opportunities to become more like Christ, to strengthen yourself so that you may endure even greater hardships should they come your way. So we've covered the fact that God grows us in our faith. Now let's look at point number two. God always gives us the grace we need to endure. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 10, 13. So you're gonna flip forward in your Bible towards the end. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. And it reads, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, the Greek word here used for temptation is perasmos. This word, the word in this verse has been translated as temptation. However, it is translated in other contexts as test or trial. And in this particular verse, the word perasmos scholars agree, is meant to be understood with a broad meaning, right? So this means that James intended this word to encompass not only the idea of temptation, but the ideas of tests and trials as well. This isn't always the way this word is used, but in this context, this is the way James meant it to be used, or uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians. The translators had to pick one word for this specific verse, so they went with temptation, which is the right choice because temptation is the main emphasis of the passage, But when we understand that this verse is also talking about tests and trials, we see that God is faithful. He will not give us a trial beyond our ability and that he gives us the grace to endure it. And we face trials and tests, don't we? Some of you may have experienced or have close loved ones that have experienced the trial called cancer. Others of you may have experienced the trial of wayward child. What about job loss? Financial disaster? chronic pain. Take heart, friend. Others have faced these trials as well. God remains faithful 
and he does not and will not bring you trials that you cannot endure. But you may be asking, Ryan, what about that way of escape that's mentioned in this verse here? I'd like, I'd like that. And at times, we're all like that, right? But this is not what is promised in this verse. God may choose to be gracious and give us a way of escape out of our suffering, but he may choose not to. Jesus didn't escape from his sufferings in this life. He was crucified on a cross when all of his friends had abandoned him, right? He was beaten, scorned, and hung naked in public. Nails were driven through his hands and through his feet. And thorns were smashed onto his head, right? It says in the gospel, according to John, that the soldiers went to break the legs of those crucified, but they didn't break Jesus' legs because he was already dead. Do you know why they would break the legs of those being crucified? Well, it's because crucifixion was death by suffocation, right? In order to breathe while hanging on a cross, you're hanging down, your lungs are collapsed down in. And in order to breathe, you would have to push yourself up in order to take a breath. And the only thing you have to push up with is through your arms or through your feet, which have nails driven through them, right? So excruciating pain just in order to take a breath and then collapse down again, right? So then they would break their legs so they couldn't push up anymore to hurry the process along when it got to be too long or they needed the, you know, the hill for something else. And this is the kind of suffering that Christ went through. He didn't escape it. And we are not promised a way of escape either. But we do know that God will provide the way of escape in the next life. That is assured. Revelation 21.4 says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. God may give you the way of escape in this life, but we cannot demand it. Job did not demand a way of escape from God, and he had no idea how long his trial would last. Friend, you may have a trial that may last your whole life. But what does 1 Corinthians 10.13 tell us? tells us that God will give us the grace to endure through the trial. We are not alone. God is with us. God provides the grace for us day by day. Today, the book of Job has asked us to stop and ask how we approach our lives. It has asked us why we follow God. It has asked us to increase our faith so that we are more like Job It has asked us if we believe that God will provide the grace we need to endure what may come. It has asked us where our hope lies. Does your hope lie in the things of this world? Or does your hope lie in Jesus Christ? Friend, if you do not know Jesus, or if you realize you have not truly been following him, today is the day to turn to him. And have the worship team come forward as we close in prayer today. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ, and the sacrifice he made for us. We thank you that you do not leave us to endure the hardships of life alone. God, we pray for faith today, and we pray for the daily grace that we need to endure the trials before us. Thank you that you promise to provide this for us. Help us to live in such a way this week that others will see Jesus Christ reflected in us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.
Thank you, Ryan.